And we're going to Romans 9. And what I want to do this morning, I want to actually start by letting you know about a little known fact about the book of Romans. I don't know if you knew this. Technically, Paul did not actually write the book of Romans. He dictated it. Did you know this? He dictated the book of Romans to his professional scribe, whom we know by name because he introduces himself in one of the last verses of the book of Romans. You can go read it later. Verse 16, his name was Tertius. And in chapter 16, verse 22, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, I now greet you in the Lord. So Paul had a scribe. This was a common practice in that culture. You would dictate letters. But I want you to imagine with me for just a moment what it was like to be Tertius. Listening to Paul the Apostle speak the words that would become this letter of Romans that we have. What was that like? With his pen out, just Paul's speaking, Tertius is writing. I bet he was not, oh my, that is profound. Right? Did I get that right? I bet he read it back to Paul. Are you sure you meant to say that? Okay, yes, make sure. All right. Imagine what that would have been like. And actually... There's evidence, if you read the last chapter 16, that Tertius was not the only person in the room. Because there's other people that, that greet the Romans that seem to be there. Timothy was there in verse 21. You can go read that later. This was Paul's, one of Paul's best friends, his mentor in the faith. Paul tells us that Lucius was there and Jason and a man named Sosipater Never forget Sosipater, all right? He was the life of the party, okay? <laughs> Sosipater, so glad he was there. He could break dance. I don't know. <laughs> all these people there, we also know that Phoebe was probably there. Phoebe was the deaconess, the, the woman who was Paul's patron saint. She was helping fund Paul's ministry. Phoebe became the person who actually took the letter, traveled to Rome, and read it in a performative way in front of the entire church. And most scholars believe all of these people were in the room as Paul dictated the book of letters. Now, Romans, now I want you to try to get in the room with me, especially at the moment when Paul finishes chapter eight and he just starts preaching, right? Imagine the spiritual climate in the room. I am convinced that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. For I'm sure that nothing can separate us from God's love. Death can't separate us. Life can't separate us. Angels, demons, the present, the future, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I bet this room erupted. It was like the first charismatic worship service in the early church. People were jumping around. Phoebe took a ribbon and ran around the room. Sosipater started breakdancing. It was like... A moment, everyone's rejoicing, everyone's high-fiving, except for one person. One person was weeping. And it was the Apostle Paul. And do you want to know why he was weeping? Because Paul was sitting there going, what about my brothers and sisters, the Jews, though? They've completely turned their back on Jesus. And he just broke down. 
Probably Phoebe and Jason and Timothy, and they were, they were all thinking, Paul, you've stirred them up now. Now just cut to chapter 12, get practical. You've grabbed them emotionally, get super practical. But Paul says, actually, we can't do chapter 12 yet because there's something absolutely massive I have to deal with. And so he said, Tertius, pull out your pen. There's one more thing I have to say. And here's what he said. Romans 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When Paul wrote his letter, or technically when Paul dictated this letter, the vast majority of his fellow Jews had turned their backs on Jesus Messiah. And they had turned their backs on Paul's gospel. And this was a cause of inexplicable agony for Paul. I mean, just look at the way he describes his emotion in verse 2. Just hover over your Bible because this is an astonishing... I mean, when we think of Paul, we think of the guy who survived snake bites and shipwrecks and the lashes. I mean, Paul was, Paul was strong, right? Paul was composed. In this moment, Paul is barely able to contain himself emotionally. He's weeping. I imagine tears rolling down his cheeks. His heart is crushed. Look what it says. Great sorrow and unceasing. And a kind of anguish that you hope to God it ends eventually, but it never stops. You just keep feeling anguish and you keep feeling anguish and you keep feeling anguish. And Paul's like, that's me. I'm just constantly in anguish. I would ask you if you've ever felt this kind of anguish for someone that you love who has rejected Jesus, but I already know that many, if not most of you have because you tell us about it. We go away every year, the elders, we go away, and one of the things we do is we pray for the church, and we haven't done this for a couple of years, but there were years where we would put out prayer cards and have all of you write, how can we pray for you? And then the elders go away, and all we do for 24 hours is we just get on our knees and we pray by name for every person in our church. I remember uh, one of our newer elders, Kirk Layton, he came on that first, that was his first retreat, and we got to the end of the retreat. He was like, that is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Not because it's hard to pray, because it's hard to read what you're dealing with. And I had a prayer card four years ago where a mom was writing out the names of her children who had walked away from Jesus, and there were drops of tears on the prayer card. And I fell to my knees, and I just prayed. 
Have you felt that? Think about that roommate that you love, that spouse that you live with, that old high school friend, that youth pastor who led you to Christ and now has deconstructed her faith or his faith, that child that you spent years and years of your life and quite a bit of your finances raising them, (laughs) and now they've just blown you off and worse, they've blown off Jesus. Do you ever feel deep anguish? I bet you do. Isn't it amazing that in a book like Romans that's all about all these lofty themes, you come to a verse and you realize, here's a person who actually knows what it's like for me to navigate my life with a friend and someone I love who doesn't want to follow Jesus. And you go, well, why? Why is it so painful? I mean, one of the reasons it's painful is because we love, I mean, think of the joy of knowing Christ. What did Paul say? I count everything in my life as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Have you ever felt that? I just love Jesus so much. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing about my life, and I cannot understand why my friend, my spouse, my child doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. But I think there's another thing happening there, and it's happening for Paul. This is deeper than that. It brings up a challenge in our heads about whether or not God is good. Because we think, God, why, why? Why would you not save my child? And did you know that was what Paul was dealing with? We look at verse three. It's so interesting when Paul says, you know what, if I could, I would trade places. Have you ever noticed that? Paul said, if I could, I would be the one who's cut off from, I would be accursed. That's the strong Greek word, anathema. He's saying, I would go to the place where I'm cut off from Christ, the object of God's curse, if it meant that my, who's he talking about? My brothers and my Jewish brothers and sisters, my kinsmen would accept the gospel. Paul's saying, this is not just an emotional crisis. This is actually a theological crisis for me because these are God's chosen people. So look at the list in verses four and five. He, all, all these blessings that the people had. Paul's not just saying, hey, they're privileged as God's people. He's saying, these are the covenant chosen people of God. They're the ones who are the... the uh, the patriarchs, the glory in the temple, they're the ones who have the covenant. Paul's saying the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people is a cataclysmic theological crisis because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And Christianity is a Jewish religion. Paul's saying, for them to turn their backs on Jesus is a problem having to do with God's covenant faithfulness. Did you know that in Jeremiah 31, when Jeremiah writes the new covenant that would be for the future people of God, that covenant, I will be your God, you will be my people, that's the new covenant. Do you know who that was for first? It was for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. This is why Paul, when he would walk into every city to preach the gospel, where would he go first? 
He'd go to the synagogue. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And so Paul practiced what he preached. He'd walk into a town. He'd go to the synagogue where the Jews had gathered. He'd preach the gospel and do his shock and horror. They would call him a moron and a buffoon and an idiot. They'd turn their backs. And then suddenly the church is swarming with Gentiles. And Paul falls on his knees and begins weeping because he says, this is a cataclysmic theological problem. What's the solution? Look at verse six. Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Just hover on that verse. Here's what I want you to know. That verse is the main point of all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, all of chapter 11. Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11 to prove that statement. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Because the wholesale rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people causes Paul to ask the question, God, has your word failed? Like, have you failed your people? This is, this is the, the, the logical conclusion. They've turned their backs. If they've turned their backs on you, how is it possible that your, your old, in the Old Testament, your new covenant promises to Israel, how, how could they not have failed? And here's the thing. This is not just Paul's crisis. This is our crisis today. Because friends, think about it. If God's promises don't hold true for his original covenant people, why would we think they would hold true for the new covenant people? Do you love Romans 8? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you, do you love Romans 8? I love Romans 8. Think of the promises in Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Hallelujah. God will work everything for, you, for your good. He'll take every circumstance and he'll somehow find a way to work it for your good. Praise God. Nothing can separate you from Christ. There's nothing God will withhold from you. If he didn't withhold his one and only son, he will give you all things. You're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate you. The sword, famine, persecution, death, life, angels, demons, all of creation, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And Phoebe says, oh, really, Paul? What about the Jews? They've been separated from the love of Christ. So if you love Romans 8, you've got to solve the problem of Romans 9. And that's what we're going to do together. So this morning, we began a six-week journey through chapters 9 through 11. That was my introduction to the sermon right there, by the way. <clears throat> I hope that I've convinced you that Romans 9 through 11 is worth your study. Because a lot of people think, well, I'll skip I'm going to go from 8.31, I'm going to jump to 12 where it gets really practical. Let's not do that. Let's give Romans 9 through 11 
some time, six weeks. It'll take us almost to Christmas. And if you know anything about this passage, this three chapters, you know that pretty much everything in Romans 9 through 11 is controversial. Christians have been fighting about Romans 9 through 11 for 2,000 years, all right? We've been fighting about what Paul says about election, sovereign election, okay? We've been fighting about what Paul says about the future of Israel. Is there a mass conversion of Israel at the end of time? What's the relationship between Israel and the church? Can I tell you something? Paul did not write these chapters to cause Christians to fight for 2,000 years, okay? Everything that Paul brings in, the doctrine of election, the future of Israel, the Gentiles, how do they fit, the church, all of that he brings in to support the first seven words of verse six. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And let me prove it to you. So what I want to do this morning is I want to I want to just begin to, I want to look at the first part of the argument. All we're going to do this morning is verses 6 through 13. Believe me, that's going to be plenty, okay? You're going to walk out of here with your head on fire. Um, we're going to, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to stop, and then I'm going to go back. Today I'll do it a little different. I'm going to actually go verse by verse by verse. Some of you love this. I'm going to work through it verse by verse from 6 to 13. Here is Paul's support. The first step in his supporting argument, remember, he said, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And now let me prove why. Because it looks like the word of God has failed. Because all of the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. So how is it, Paul, that the word of God has not failed? And Paul says, here's the first step in my argument. Verse 6b. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Paul's quoting from the story of Sarah and Abraham in the book of Genesis. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, verse 10, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now don't panic, okay? And don't hyperfixate right now on the word election, all right? Some of you are like, wait a minute. What is he going to say about that? We're going to, don't, I, election's a big concept. Don't make the mistake right now of deciding to work your way out of something that you haven't fully understood yet. What we have to do is go verse by verse and try to, let's look at the flow of the argument. If there's one thing we learned about Paul, every single word is calculated. And there's every single step in his logic is intentional. So how is what we just read an argument for the fact that 
God's promises will never fail. Even his promises to Israel, because it sure looks like they failed, Paul. And Paul says, I know that's what it looks like, but that's not what's happening. And here's why. Here's the first thing I want you to know. Paul, when he read his Old Testament, he saw a pattern in the Old Testament story. In the redemptive storyline, he noticed a pattern in which there's always been within the vast nation of Israel a winnowing. Or some people use the word a remnant. A smaller group who are the actual objects of the promise. God's election of the whole nation of Israel as his chosen people was never to be understood as a guarantee of the salvation of all of the individuals. Rather, a select group within it, and it's this narrower band of Israel for whom God's word remains effective. And what Paul does is he, he states that principle three different times. Verse 6b, verse 7, and then 8. So look at your Bible. I'm just going to show it to you. He's, he's basically saying the same thing three times so that we get the argument. Look for the pattern. There's a pattern, a remnant, a winnowing, a selection that happens. Election, within election. The first statement is verse 6b. Do you see that? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's saying there is within Israel almost what you might call a true Israel. An Israel within the Israel. And then he basically says the same thing in the next verse, verse 7, about Abraham. Not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So within the offspring of Abraham, there are what you might call the true children of Abraham. And then in verse 8, he says it again. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. There were children of the flesh, ethnic, ethnic Israelites, but within all of those ethnic Israelites, there was a winnowing and there were children of the promise. And Paul says this is the reason why the promises of God never fail because the promises of God were always for the people who were the children of the promise within that winnowing. And then what Paul does is he uses two, I'm just moving through the argument first, okay? Then what he does is he brings in two Old Testament examples, two sets of brothers, this is where you have to have a little bit of a working familiarity with the Old Testament. Many of you do, some of you don't, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk you through it a little bit. Paul uses two sets of brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, remember them? And then Jacob and Esau, the twins. The first one is Isaac and Ishmael. Look, he, he, he says there in verse 7b, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He said, Paul says, this is about the children of the, of the promise. Within Abraham, there were children of the flesh and there were children of the promise. Isaac was the child of the promise. But you go, why Isaac? Why not Ishmael? Is it because Isaac was the, the rightful heir? Well, I mean, wasn't Isaac the older brother? The older brother was always the rightful heir, but actually Isaac wasn't the older brother. Ishmael was the older brother. So it doesn't make sense that God would choose Isaac. 
what's happening here is Paul saying, this is this, is, this, this isn't about who, which brother is older. The, Abraham had already had an older son and a proper heir, but Isaac was the child who was the fulfillment of God's promises, a promise that would require a miracle. Remember this? You know the story. God comes to Abraham. He says, you're gonna be the father of many nations, and actually Sarah's gonna be the mother. Did you know that in Genesis, God actually predicts to Abraham, you're gonna have a son, Sarah will be the mother, and I want you to name him Isaac. And you know what happened? Abraham laughed at God. I do not recommend this, friends. Okay, he, he said, are you kidding me? All right, first he said, look at me, and then he was like, look at her. Okay, she's barren. I've been collecting, you know, retirement for 40 years. It's never gonna happen, God. Now, what should Abraham have done? He should have said, I have absolutely no idea how you're going to do this, but I trust you. What did Abraham do? He actually, with the help of Sarah, he cooked up a plan to get God out of his conundrum. And Sarah brought in Hagar, who was her maid. And Abraham had sex with a woman that was not his wife. And they had Ishmael. And so Paul is seeing something in this Old Testament story. He's seeing something that's pointing to an understanding of this narrowing down. Because he's saying, Abraham, you tried to fix the problem, but I, Ishmael is a child of the flesh, but the promise doesn't go through a child of the flesh. The promise goes through a child of the promise. This is why Paul quotes in verse nine, do you see that quote? At this time next year, I will come and Sarah will have a child. The birth of Isaac was a miraculous work of God in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. And you've got to see this, or you're never going to understand why the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. The reason this is connected to election is because Paul is drawing out a principle from the Old Testament and he's saying, Isaac, the way Isaac came into being is a paradigm for the way that every child of God comes into being. It requires a miracle. You have to be raised from the dead spiritually. You have to be born again. You don't become a, a child of God by figuring out religion. You become a child of God when God pours out his Holy Spirit and your heart ignites with life and you fall in love with Jesus. Amen? And Paul says, we saw that in the story of Isaac. But then he says, okay, but let me give you one more example. So then Paul says, let's, let's go to the example of Jacob and Esau. Now look at verse 10, because I want you to notice what Paul's doing here. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now just stop. Note, what is Paul doing there? A couple things. First of all, he's saying Rebekah conceived children, twins, by one man. She's 
what Paul's doing is he's saying, lest you think with the example of Isaac and Ishmael, the problem is that Ishmael's mother was a Gentile. She was an Egyptian. So it makes sense God would not have the promise. Paul says, okay, what I'm going to do next, my next example, I'm going to eliminate all the possible distinctives. One father, one mother, one womb, twins. If you're looking for a reason, distinctives between the two boys, why God chose one over the other, Paul says, all the distinctives, I'm, I'm taking them away. These were twins. I have a twin brother. And when we were younger, we looked so much alike that most people could not tell us apart. All right? I mean, we were as twins as twins could be. By the way, as the younger of two twins, my favorite verse is verse 12. The older shall serve the younger. Okay? That was the first Bible verse I memorized. I quoted that to my brother on a regular basis. Boys, clean the kitchen. Well, Aaron, you know what it says in Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 9. We looked so much alike, though, that no one could tell us apart to the point where our freshman year, my brother broke his wrist on prom day. He fell, we were playing soccer, he fell out of bounds, he broke, snapped his wrist. He was not going to prom, and his, his date was absolutely heartbroken. And I was like, well, if the tux fits, I can wear it. So, so I stepped in. Michelle Ballantyne, she was really pretty, but not that she doesn't hold a candle to Kathy, but that's a different thing. And, and we, we questioned, should we even tell Michelle that it's not Aaron? It's actually... Because she had a crush on my brother, we decided we should let her know. She was actually devastated, which actually hurt my ego. But anyway, it's a whole other story. <laughs> Paul says, lest in your head you want to solve God's problem of election by coming up with some differences between the two boys, I'm going to relieve you of that need by taking all the distinctives off the table. There's nothing about these two boys that God foresaw that would cause him to choose one over the other. They were twins. And Paul drives the point home in verse 11. Look, when he says, he said to Rebecca, before the twins were born, before they could do anything, right or wrong, then you skip to 12, the older shall serve the younger. Now, what is the point? The point is this. The point is this. Jacob was not chosen over Esau because of virtue or merit. Jacob was a scoundrel and a conniver. He was not chosen because he was more virtuous. He was not chosen because of some natural humility or trait that God foresaw in him. In order for God's purpose of election to stand, God in his sovereign, perfect wisdom decided to choose Jacob over Esau. And it had nothing to do with any work that he would perform to merit it. I recognize 
that this teaching is, although it might be easy to grasp, sometimes it's difficult to accept. It's sort of like a small bitter pill. You can get into your mouth easily, but it's really hard to swallow, right? And some of you are like, what? What? What is going on here? Ah, is this really what the Bible teaches? So what I want to do now for just a couple minutes, I just want to share a couple of words of wisdom as your pastor, okay? The first thing I want to say, this, this is not even my first point. The first thing I want to say is if you are struggling with this, okay, welcome, welcome to the family, all right? Everyone struggles with this. I told, when I was 20 years old, I threw a Bible across the room when I first heard this taught, okay? Which is another thing I don't recommend you do. So if you're struggling, here's the mistake. If you're struggling, don't go, there's something wrong with Christianity. Or if you're struggling, don't say, I'm out of here. Don't struggle alone. Don't struggle in isolation. Struggle here, because it's gonna take me five more weeks to deal with this whole thing. Struggle with us, not out there, okay? And also, if you're struggling, I love you and you're welcome here. And if you have to struggle for 20 years till Jesus comes back, great, because Christians have been struggling with this since Paul dictated it. But let me give you three kind of words of advice, all right? I'm gonna put these up so you can see them, and then I'm gonna pray for you. The first word of advice is this. Learn to love the mysteries of God. Some stuff is just a mystery, okay? And just let it be a mystery. Have you ever thought about this? If there was nothing about God that was mysterious, you know what the one thing that would prove? He's probably not God because God is mysterious. One of, the, one of the mistakes that we make is whenever we come to something that's mysterious, we try to explain it away. Well, there's got to be an explanation. So, for example, when we, when we talk about election, a lot of times people say, well, this makes God look arbitrary and, un I mean, how unjust. How is this not God just going, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a Jacob bias? I mean, it's like, how is that not just a complete lack of justice on God's part? And then what we try to do is we say, I'm going to start filling on all the reasons why I think it's there but don't do that because the, then what, what you end up doing is you end up ignoring parts of Scripture. You create a rationale that the Bible doesn't teach. So don't do that. We're not told that there were no reasons. All we're told is there were no reasons in Jacob and Esau. But God could have perfectly well had divine sovereign reasons that we don't get to know about. Here's the second kind of word of advice. Paul did not write this to cause Christians to fight for 2,000 years. All right? He didn't write this to start an argument. He didn't write this to create the Calvinist-Arminian debate. And if you don't know what those words are, don't worry about it. It's basically two sides of, of, of the issue of predestination and election. And can I tell you something? Calvinists and, Ar and Arminians are all part of the people of God 
That's all within orthodoxy. One of the things that I will not tolerate in our church is people making jokes about the two sides or looking down on the two sides. Or I was just at a teaching conference where throughout the conference, one of the moderators kept making fun of Calvinists. And I thought, that's just so petty. It's like, you're making fun of Augustine and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Timothy Keller, and he's got cancer. So that's really bad form, all right? So let's not make fun of each other. You will never, ever hear me take cheap shots at either side of this view. I tend to be on more of the reform side, the Calvinist side, but some of the smartest, wisest, most godly people I know are on a different side. And some of the greatest books that I've read about this passage are written by Arminians. So let's get a little posture of humility. Let's talk to each other. Go to your community group, work it out. We're not talking about heresy on the line here. We're just having a fun, friendly, cup of hot chocolate conversation in the church about the sovereign purposes of God. Amen? Let's do it. Here's the third thing. Don't assume that because the doctrine is difficult, the alternative is better. Election, why? Why does the Bible have to insist on this? I've even heard people say, this is Paul's doctrine. Jesus never talked about this. Really? Have you read the Gospel of John? Jesus talked about election countless times. And some people go, well, if it's controversial, why do we have to insist on it? And then they think, well, there's probably an alternative. There is no alternative that solves the problem. It actually creates more. Without election, you compromise the central teaching of the Bible, which is that we are saved by grace alone, not by our works. If the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is ultimately in us, then we are the real authors of our salvation. And that, my friends, is a problem. And not even Arminians believe that. By the way, Arminians believe in election. And Arminians believe in predestination. They believe in everything that Paul writes because Arminians are biblical. And then a final note. I'm going to invite the worship team up and I'm going to just say one last thing. This is just Paul's argument so far. Okay, I've just gotten started. Paul hasn't even actually addressed yet. Well, what about the Gentiles? Like, why are there so many Gentiles coming in? Are the Jews cut off forever? So basically, Paul's going to move, he's going to keep moving in his argument, and eventually he has some stuff to say about what's coming in the future, a future mass conversion of Jews that he's going to address. And so one of the things we have to do with a thing like 9 through 11 is we just have to take our time, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, come back, okay? I love you. I love you. Do you love me? Okay. I love you, and, but more than that, you know what? You know that? I love God's word. I love God's glory. I love King Jesus. I love our church. I love the gospel. I love it when you follow Jesus. I love it when you walk out the door and you look so much like Jesus that people want to find out where you go to church. I love that, okay? So that's the most important stuff to love, and I hope you'll do it well. I'm gonna pray for you right now while the worship team prays. Lord God, I wanna pray over my 
sisters and brothers in Christ. The very first thing I wanna pray is that God, by your grace, we would use our minds the way Paul used his. So when we come to a conundrum, when we come to a philosophical paradox, when we come to something we don't like, when we come to something that's confusing, God, please, please don't allow us to make God alter his ways according to our, what we think is our logic. May we do it the other way around. May we alter our thinking, our logic, our values based on the perfect authoritative word of God. But also I wanna pray for my friends, God, about their emotion, their hurt, I wanna go all the way back to the beginning. Father, would you help us to deal with our anguish the way Paul did? Now, are you hurting this morning? Think about this. Where's your pain? Is it a broken relationship? Is it a loved one that's walked away from Jesus? Is it terrible news you've received? Is it massive conflict in your most intimate relationships? Where's the pain? Did you notice what Paul did? He didn't ignore it. He didn't suppress it. He didn't pretend it wasn't there. But he also, he did not enthrone his emotion. He did not say, whatever I'm feeling right now is God and I will make the true God bend to what I'm feeling. Don't do that. Wherever your hurt is, take your hurt bring it into the light of the revealed word of God in his scripture and let God speak to your pain. But don't make God bend. He's God and he loves you. But we do pray, Father, we pray. For our friends, we pray for spouses, we pray for sons and daughters and neighbors, old youth pastors and senior pastors who've walked from faith, people that we love, please, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Pour out your Holy Spirit. And if somehow in your wisdom, you'd allow us to be a part of salvation, we pray for that too. And we pray together in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.